Our scripture this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 to 18. It can be found in the Blue Bibles on page 956. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If we share this rightful claim on you, do we not eat, we, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Margaret. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. I don't think I'll ever get used to getting up here and seeing this room full. It's just a continual reminder of God's provision. If you're new or visiting with us, we've only been in this space for a, a few months now. And uh, we just got a, you might have noticed, we have some new chairs, some new permanent chairs that we were able to add. So we're still moving into the space, but it's always a joy every time we get to be together uh, here this morning. Well, today, uh, as I said, if you're new, I, I'm, I'm Sully. would love to uh, get to know you. I'd love to introduce myself, shake your hand after the service. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've been calling this sermon series, Church on Fire. And we've said this a few times, but church on fire could mean a couple of different things. It could mean something good, and you're on fire, you're just determined, you know, focused on something, you can be on fire. But to be on fire could also maybe mean something negative as well. Uh, to be on fire means going up in flames. The church in Corinth was a young church, a talented church, but a young church. And we could summarize that the letter to the Corinthian church was a, a letter teaching them uh, how to grow up, how to keep learning, how to live in light of the gospel. For so long they had viewed the world in one way, but now they're being taught to view the world through the gospel. I don't know if you've ever been in a dark room and then stepped out into the blazing light of the sun and it, 
blinds you and it takes you a few moments to get your bearings. That's a little bit what it's like to become a Christian, to become aware of the gospel, to view the world through a whole new set of lenses. There's a, an animated movie called Luca. I think it's a Disney movie, but it's a, a movie uh, about these sea creatures that can come up on land. It's kind of a, a it sounds a little spooky, but it's not really. He, they come up on land and this, this character, Luca, his fins turn into arms and his tail turns into feet and he has to learn to walk and he trips and he falls and it's his friend who ends up having to teach him how to put one foot in front of the other. And over, over time, he figures out how to balance himself and begins to walk. The letter to the Corinthian church is a letter teaching, teaching them how to crawl and how to walk and eventually how to run. If you have lived your life for so long thinking about yourself, it takes a little bit of getting used to of looking at the world through a lens of how you can serve others. If you have lived your life for so long uh, thinking about what other people owe you, it takes a little bit of getting used to of thinking about how you can, again, love others. If you have gone your entire life with this mentality of entitlement, it takes a bit getting used to having a mindset of generosity. I'm a millennial, so I can pick on my generation a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of words that are used to describe my generation. I'm sure that among them, we're known for being brilliant and beautiful and creative and humble. But no, probably what's more likely to be known about our generation is that we're kind of entitled. There's a study that says that 65% of people think of the millennial generation as entitled, the sense of thinking that people owe us a lot. I don't think it's just a millennial problem, though, this sense of entitlement. I think it's a problem that plagues us all. It wreaks havoc in our relationships, our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, even in our politics, when this sense of entitlement is the lens by which we view the world. Today, as we are looking again at this letter to the, first Corinth, the, the church in Corinth, learning how to, to walk and then to run. One of the things that Paul wants to teach them is how to do away with this sense of entitlement. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is, what is the antidote to a sense of entitlement? So before we get into the text, I want to, I want to ask the Lord for his help. So would you just pause with me for a second and let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you and we pause because your word is extraordinary. It's no ordinary activity to be spoken to by the creator of all things. And so with reverence and wonder, we approach you this morning. We come to take seriously your word to us. So Lord, wreck whatever idols need to be wrecked in our life. Lord, take captive whatever lies that need to be taken captive. And place before us a gospel that is beautiful and good. Show us a better way to, to live, to think, and to act. Father, show us where true life and hope comes from. And Father, I pray that you would help me to speak what is only true this morning, that Father, I would not seek the approval of those here in this room, but Lord, I would seek your approval, that my reward might be to preach the gospel faithfully. It's for the glory of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, early in my preparations for preaching this, this text, I was reading through it a few times, and my first couple of readings, I thought this morning I was going to be preaching a sermon about why you should pay your pastor. I was thinking, whoa, what a great sermon this will be to preach. But after looking at the text a little bit closer, beginning to see that this text actually has a, a lot more going on in it. 
In this text, we find not just this rationale for the right or the, uh, the responsibility of pastors to get paid, but rather something much more important. What Paul, I think, is teaching us is that there are some times that it makes sense to set aside our rights in order to love other people. If you were with us last week, we read this really strange uh, text about food being offered to idols and whether the church in Corinth could eat that food, that meat, or not. The whole point or the whole issue at hand was whether they had the freedom to do this. And Paul's answer to them was, yeah, of course, as long as you know that the, this meat offered to idols is offered to idols, that it's really, there's nothing special about it. Sure, you can do that. But he says, there's a caveat, he says, don't use your freedom if it's going to cause one of your brothers or sisters to stumble. And so he, he begins to carry on with this idea of sometimes restricting our freedom in order to care for other people. Here in our text today, he actually points to himself as an example of someone who could follow to help them understand this way of viewing the world, not through a sense of entitlement, but through a lens of radical love. Uh, we're going to look at our text in three different sections, three, three different movements in the text. We're first going to look at how Paul establishes his right to be paid. And then secondly, he moves from establishing his right to get paid to the responsibility on the Corinthian church to help fulfill that right. But in the third section, we'll see Paul takes this kind of crazy turn and says, but I, I'm not going to take advantage of that right or that of your responsibility because there's something greater, a greater reward. So if you're looking for a couple of simple titles today, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 7. You could title Paul's right. Verses 8 through 14, it's the Corinthians' responsibility. And then verses 15 through 18, we'll look at a greater reward. If you have your Bibles in front of you, I encourage you to keep them open. Uh, we'll try to put the, the text on the screen behind me, but I want you to see for yourself how he makes his argument today. Look, look back at verse 1. Here we come across a whole bunch of questions. There's actually a, a lot of questions in this text. But looking at the first couple, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? This list of questions kind of comes out of nowhere, uh, might seem a little disorienting, but this first question he asks, am I not free, serves as a bit, a bit of a bridge, connects us back to the previous text where he was talking about freedom, the radical freedom that Christians have, and he says, am I not also free? What he does in these first couple of questions is begin to conjure up in the minds of the reader the memory that they have about the apostle Paul, the example that he set among them. He says to them, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Am I, have I not seen Jesus? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He kind of is beginning to remind them of his credentials. That he, just like the rest of the apostles, saw the risen Lord. He also not only points to that as credentials, but he also says, you yourselves are a seal of, of my apostleship. He says that in verse 2. You can look there. It says, if, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In the letter to the Corinthian church, a couple of different times, Paul has had to defend his apostleship, his authority. The reason for that is because there were some in the church who wanted to call into question Paul's authority as an apostle. And you see that there were some in the church who wanted to measure and evaluate Paul according to their standards. It was common for other teachers to come into the city and to teach and to, to preach different messages and and they had a certain set of standards that they wanted Paul to live up to. That, you know, there was a, a mindset, a picture of what a successful teacher should look like. 
And one of those things was that they would receive support from people. Think about it, if, they were, if you were considered a wise person, uh, the way that the interaction would go down was that you would go to that wise person and they would share the wisdom and then you would give them support, some money, some financial support. And so if someone was considered to be wise and authoritative, they would receive a lot of financial support. So for them, as they look at Paul, the issue wasn't that Paul is trying to convince them that they need to pay him. The issue is that Paul isn't accepting what they want to pay him. The, what's going on here is that they didn't like that Paul wouldn't accept their money because it, it was almost a way in which it, it caused Paul to look like a not a very authoritative or, or someone who was very respected because he didn't accept money. So again, they were evaluating him according to these other standards, the common standards of, the, uh, of Corinth, and he wasn't living up to their expectations. He wasn't living up to what they thought they should deserve as a teacher for them. They thought they, if Paul was someone who was authoritative, he would accept pa- patrons and patro- uh, money from people, but he doesn't. Paul goes along in this, uh, in this section of our, our letter agreeing with them, agreeing with the church in Corinth to say, yeah, you are right. I do deserve to be paid. But what he'll do in a little bit is begin to explain why he doesn't take advantage of this right. But here he's defending his apostleship. Look at verse 3. He says this very clearly. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. He goes on with more questions. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have, not, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? These couple of questions he asks next are all related to his right to receive a living. Think about it for a second. He's asking, does he not have the right to collect you know, money to be able to buy food and drink? Well, of course, he, of course you do, Paul. And then he asks, do I not have the right to, take a, to have a family, to take a believing wife, just like the brothers of Jesus and, and Cephas? To have a family would require more financial support? Well, of course, Paul. Of course you do. Third question, verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? The answer to all of these questions continues to be, yes, Paul, you, you do deserve, just, as, just like the rest of the apostles, the right to receive support. We know that, that the answers to these questions is, yes, Paul, you do have this right, because of what happens next in verse 7. He gives some very tangible examples, or his rationale is, is seen most clearly Look at, look at verse 7. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do you see his logic here? He says that no soldier works, no soldier goes to battle if he's not being paid. No farmer is going to plant if he doesn't think he's going to have a harvest. No one tends a flock if they don't think they're going to reap some type of benefit. I really love the fact that Paul equates the work of ministry to the work of a soldier and a farmer and a shepherd. And these are very tangible, earthy jobs. And I think that what is being seen and what's the connection being made here is that these jobs that are mentioned are work that is seen as valuable and good, and so is the work of preaching the gospel. Whatever work you do, whether it's with your hands or with your mind or with your voice, They all seem to have value, according to Scripture, according to the Word of God. 
all of these questions adding up here in the first seven verses of our passage today, it goes to build this understanding that Paul has a right to make a living, to simply receive support. And he's going to continue. He's not done yet building up his argument for why he deserves this, why he has this right. But I want to pause for just a moment, though, and just acknowledge this this fact that Paul is, is, in some ways, is building an argument for workers' rights. Uh, I think for a lot of people, their perception of Christianity, maybe there are some of you here today who view Christianity as having maybe this, maybe being a little bit morally backwards, maybe a little bit restrictive. Well, I think history would say otherwise. It has been Christian thinking and beliefs that have really shaped Western society and our understanding of human rights. It's, it's really Christian doctrine that has revolutionized the, the rights of those that we often think of as marginalized. It's in scripture that really speaks of rights for children and for women and for the foreigner and for the exile, for the sick. And here in this particular passage, the worker has rights and has dignity. Here in this passage, what, what comes about is that there's a moral dimension to economics, that to underpay someone, to not to withhold pay is violating someone's human rights. What makes North American slavery so disgusting is the fact that it's a breaking of someone's very human rights, their, their rights as a person. I was convicted this, this week thinking a little bit about how clear in Scripture it's speaking of of someone deserving to be paid for the work that they do. And I was thinking about how I probably, a lot of my clothes I wear, I, I buy, and I'll, when I buy them, I'm often only thinking about if it's affordable. And how much of my things I purchase are probably created or made by people who aren't being paid a living wage. In Scripture, we're told that, that anyone who does work that's valuable, that is good, should be paid and has value. Rodney Stark, a, a historian, in his analysis of the rise of Christianity, how it spread so much, he, makes, he, he finishes his whole book about the rise of Christianity by saying that one of the primary reasons that Christianity has become such a, so widespread is the fact that it restores human dignity. For us today, I think that if you are, are here today and you're you would be one of those who considers Christianity maybe a little bit morally backwards or restrictive. I, I would probably guess that that is because there, you have seen Christianity through the lens of someone who, who has not taken the Bible very seriously. Because here in our text, there is, speaks of, of work, of human rights as, as something that should be upheld. That the Bible radically and staunchly defends some of the very rights that we hold most tightly as a society. Well, coming back, though, for a second to Paul's argument, he, again, was wanting to build this idea that he deserves to be paid. But as we move into the second section of the passage, it kind of intensifies a bit. He moves from the general to the specific. He goes from the kind of the impersonal to the personal. He goes and says, I, yes, I have this right, and you all have a responsibility to fulfill this right. Look at uh, verse 8. He, again, goes on to build his argument. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? 
It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? You see that? he Right here at the end, of the, he says, we have this right that needs to be fulfilled by you. That the church in Corinth has a responsibility to support Paul. Paul, he, he knows how to make a good argument. He knows that his authority as an apostle is maybe being undermined or questioned in the church. And so he, he appeals to another authority. In verse 8, he says, do I, do I say these things on human authority? He says, look at scripture, look at the law. See how it also upholds this right. He quotes this maybe kind of obscure law about not muzzling an ox when it's working in the field. And he says, was this written for the sake of just the animal? And he says, no. This was written for us to understand something very important about work. You see, uh, an ox was working, the work that an ox does should be rewarded. It should be able to eat along its way as it's working, that even an ox is deserving of payment for the work that it does. It's an argument of least to greater. greater. If God cares even for the ox and the work that it does, how much more so then should he care about the work of one who preaches his gospel? You know, sometimes we like to separate things into these categories of sacred and secular, uh, the idea that there's a hierarchy of different jobs out there. But here, Paul does not see either of those categories. His whole argument is based off of the idea that the work of a preacher is just as deserving of a reward as an ox that plows a field. It goes to show that God does not just only care about the work of ministry, but he cares about all types of work. That if he cares about the work of an ox, how much more so do you think he cares about the work that you do? If God cares about the animals being rewarded and supplied what they need for the work that they do, how much more so do you think God cares about you? If he cares about the economics of an ox, don't you think he cares about the, your finances? and that you would be, make enough to make a living. There's nothing more scary these days than going to the gas station and filling up your car. <laughs> Seeing the number click, 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 click up as higher, 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 it can be daunting a little bit, doesn't it? And those are moments where I just, I can get a little bit of a knot in my stomach. And it's in moments, just those everyday small moments that I need to be reminded once again that God doesn't just care for my eternal destiny. My, where I'm going to spend eternity, but God cares about my very needs right now, in the present, in this life. And so today, I just I want to encourage you, whether you are maybe feeling the, having to pinch some pennies, feeling a little bit anxious about where you're going to, uh, how you're going to make ends meet, we have a God who knows that that's stressing you out a bit, making you anxious. And I just encourage you to bring it to the Lord who cares even for the ox. As Paul goes on in his argument, he makes clear that he trusts that God is going to provide for him. He, in verse 12, he hints towards this fact that he actually doesn't even accept the, the, the money that the Corinthian church is trying to offer him because he doesn't want anything to be an obstacle in the way of their understanding of the gospel. And he's going to continue to build that argument in a moment, but kind of in verse 12 and 13, it's almost as if Paul realizes that he has a few more things to say about his right a few more examples uh, to give for why he deserves to be paid. So look, look in verse 13 and 14. He says just a couple more things. He says, do, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple 
and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering. So he's, he's pointing to the temple. He's, whether it's a pagan temple or the Jewish temple, the priests, the, the people who worked in those temples would receive their gifts, what they needed from what people brought. So that's an example that, that he too should be able to be paid. But then verse 14, he gives one more, one more appeal to a higher authority. He points to a teaching from Jesus Christ. He says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He's quoting from, I believe, Matthew 10. Here, the whole argument, as it's moving through the text, is trying to build this idea that those who preach the gospel, yes, have a right to be paid. And the Corinthians, well, they have a responsibility to pay him. And I find it interesting that this isn't trying to be a guilt trip on the Corinthian church. It's, he's not really trying to build up this argument to try to get them to feel so guilty that they give him a lot of money. No, we know that he actually won't take anything from them. Rather, I think of it more as like a parent-child relationship. A child has a right to receive a safe home, food, shelter, and it's a parent's responsibility to provide that. And it's not, it's not a burden, although sometimes it feels like a burden, but for a parent to a child, it's a privilege to love their child and to provide that. And so should be the relationship between Paul and the church that there's this right and this responsibility that's fulfilled, mutually fulfilled. If you think about it a little bit, it's interesting that God would choose for the church to support those who preach the gospel. God could do anything to su supply the needs of a preacher. He, he could cause manna to just be created out of nothing. He, he, he could somehow bring about money that we don't know about. But he also could have told the preacher to make vows of extreme poverty so that they wouldn't have any needs from anyone. That's not what God does. God is intended for his church to support those who work for the church and those who preach the gospel. So I just want to make the point this morning that your giving, when you give to Holy Trinity Church, your money isn't just going to some random place to random expenses. It's going to meet some very tangible needs. The needs of Pastor John and, my, and his family goes to meeting my needs, allows me to pay rent, allows me to provide food for my kids. And so I just want to remind you today that your giving is not just in a way of showing uh, that the Lord is king. It, it, yes, that's a way, what we're called to do is to give out of the generosity that God has given us, but I also want you to get real tangible to know that your giving goes to real needs. And if you want to know more about how the money is spent here at HCC, you can go to our finance page on our website and you can see our quarterly reports. But I just want to remind you that there's this incredible thing that God has this balance or this relationship that that his promise to take care of the needs of those who work for the church are fulfilled through you. And so there's this beautiful relationship that I just want to encourage you with today, that your giving goes to meet real needs. So at this time, I'm going to have the ushers come forward. We're going to collect another offering. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But that's kind of what we would expect Paul to do at this point in, in the text. We would think that at this point, once he's built this argument for his right, to receive funding and then this responsibility that they have, you would guess you would then say, okay, how much are you gonna give? That's, it seems like it's almost where he's heading. But as we turn to the last section of the passage, we make this real kind of jolting turn in the text. I don't know if you've been on the L before and you're riding along and it feels like you, you know, you're pretty steady, you got your balance, maybe you're reading a book and you take your hand off the railing and it jerks and you tumble into someone's arms. Maybe that's just me, but it, it's, as we would look through the text, this verse 15 comes out of nowhere almost. Makes us 
off balance a bit. Look at verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I mean, Paul's language here is pretty extreme. You've been in a conversation with someone and they say something really outlandish and it just gets your attention for a moment. It kind of feels like that with Paul. He says, I would rather die than someone take away or hinder their ability to understand the gospel. Here in these verses, uh, what we see here is, is that Paul wants them to understand that the gospel is a, it's a different type of a message. It's a, a message that can't be earned, can't be purchased in any way. That there is this value to the gospel that is beyond anything that any of us could ever put a price tag on. I think we, we you know, determine the value of something by how much we're willing to give up for it. If you want a new phone, man, you'll have to pay a lot of money for it. You have to part ways with the money to get that phone. Or if you want a, a degree, you're going to not just have to part with money, but you're probably going to have to give up a lot of time and energy to get that degree. There's other things, though, that to us, that it's not worth it. It's embarrassing that sometimes I'll be hungry sitting on the couch, and there's, I know there's leftovers in the fridge, but when I think about standing up off the couch, walking to the fridge, opening the fridge, having to warm it up, those leftovers just aren't worth it. When we think about it for a moment, we place value on different things, and depending on how much we value it, we're willing to give up stuff for it. And for Paul, what he's doing in this passage is showing them just how good, just how beautiful, just how amazing the gospel is that he's willing to give up his right to be paid. At this point in the text, you may be thinking, what, Paul, what, what's, the, what's the issue? Why? They want to give you funds. They want to support you, and you need it. So what, what, what's causing you not to take it? Well, we can notice throughout the text here that for Paul understood that the Corinthian church had a bit of a misunderstanding about the gospel that needed to be corrected. That they had this idea that, that in some ways the gospel was something that, that maybe we were entitled to or should be given. That, that in response we needed to give money to earn it and somehow. Paul wanted them to understand just how radically free the gospel is for us. They wanted a teacher that looked and sounded like the best of the teachers that passed through the city. In a way, they had a sense of entitlement to, to a teacher that was impressive, according to their standards. They wanted to measure him against the other teachers of the day, but Paul, Paul wanted to say that not only was he different, but the message he proclaimed was different than any of the other messages they heard in their city. See, Paul, I believe, understood that not only would a sense of entitlement hinder their understanding of the gospel, but it would also hinder their ability to share the gospel and to love. Now, the gospel message doesn't just lead to a sense of entitlement, but it leads to a sense of radical love for others. The gospel message, I believe what it does is it, it destroys any sense of entitlement, but it also delivers what a sense of entitlement longs for. Think about that for a second. The gospel is this message that we, who think we probably deserve a lot, actually deserve a lot less than we think. The gospel story, the, the scriptures reveal to us that we are a people who, though we think we deserve a life of, of bliss and blessing, deserve to be cursed. That we have rejected the one who has given us life. That we have both actively and passively turned our back on the, the king of kings. And so, 
the sun on our faces and the breath in our lungs is far beyond anything we deserve. And so it destroys any sense of entitlement we could ever have. And yet in the very same moment, the gospel tells us that everything we long for, everything a sense of entitlement longs for, for peace and life and hope and joy, well, it's given to us freely. What the gospel does is it becomes the antidote to a sense of entitlement. So if you're looking for one simple sentence to summarize today's message is this. The gospel is the antidote to entitlement. The last thing Paul says in our text today is that, is he asks this question, what then is my reward? Verse 18, he says, this is his reward, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Here before us is this beautiful reminder that though we are undeserving, though we have, uh, rather than earning anything good, we have earned ourselves death. And yet, because of our Savior, we can experience all that we long for, all that we could ever imagine being entitled to. So today, as we wrap up, I want to give you a couple of questions to think about and to contemplate as a way of application. The first question I want you to think about this week is, what does it look like to love in an age of entitlement? What does it look like to love other people who feel really entitled? <laughs> think about it for a moment. What would it say to them if you loved them beyond what they ever, ever thought they deserved? What radical love that would be. How surprising that would be to see, for them to see you setting aside your rights that you could love them beyond any, anything that they could ever earn. Just like we have been loved dramatically more than we could ever have deserved. Think about it in the workplace, in your home. Who are the people around you? How can you love them beyond the measure in which they deserve? Secondly, I want you to think about how does the sense of entitlement hinder you from loving other people? What, what is it that you feel a sense of entitlement to? What has maybe become idols that you hang on to pretty tightly that you need to let go of? You know, when you come home after a long day's work, do you feel kind of a sense of entitlement to a, a meal and to be able to sit on the couch the rest of the night? Do you feel a sense of entitlement in the workplace? Do you have a sense of entitlement to the, earning some type of respect or earning a certain amount of money might we let go of those things? <laughs> Lastly, to those who are here this morning who don't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, who haven't really come to, to believe the gospel, I would just ask that you would consider whether you would really want to be treated as you deserve. I think that if we're honest with ourselves, in an honest world, we know that we long for and think that we deserve more than we actually do. And I think what the gospel does is it, it affirms what we know to be true of ourselves, And yet, it still offers the hope and the joy and the meaning that we so long for. You see, what the gospel does for us is that it makes a sense of entitlement no longer necessary. There is no need nor ground to be entitled. There is no ground to be entitled because Christ has shown us that we have rebelled against him. There's no need for it to be entitled because Christ has given us everything we could ever need. 
In a few moments, we're going to come before uh, this table and we're going to partake of communion together. And it's at this meal that what we remember together is that there was one who was deserving of life. There is one person who was deserving of all respect and adoration and obedience, and yet he was, the, he was the one who set aside his right so that we might experience the grace and the love that we could never earn. We're going to close with a song where we're going to sing, all I, all I have is Christ. And I just want us to remember today that Christ has given us of himself. And having been given Christ, what more could we ever need? What more could we ever, ever imagine deserving? And may we love the world around us now with a radical type of love. Would you pray with me? Merciful Father, what we need today is the gospel work in our hearts to, to get rid of the grip of entitlement, the sense of viewing the world through the lens of what people owe us. And Father, would you humble us today by the how just extraordinarily undeserving we are, and yet how extraordinary you have loved us, extraordinarily loved us, Lord, through the sending of your Son to die on the cross for us. So set us free, Lord, from a sense of entitlement. Show us the, the great joy that it is to serve and to give with generous hearts. And Father, I pray that we might go into this world and that we, Lord, would be able to love people and love those around us with a unique and radical type of love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.